Hi, everybody. Just a quick note before the podcast begins. I figured it would be relevant information to note that this conversation with Shallon Van Tyne was recorded in January of 2022, so about four and a half months or so before you're actually listening to it now. I make that note only uh, to make very clear that that is the reason why we spend two hours talking about Russian films and don't ever bring up the war in Ukraine. Um, Obviously, had we recorded this podcast at any time since late February, that would have uh, been front and center in some of the discussion. But I just thought it would be worth noting the timing of all of this. So uh, please do keep that in mind and enjoy my conversation with Shallon Van Tyne here on Counterpunch Radio. Punch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in and coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus. That is our subscriber section. We launched that a while back and it's been such a success and so grateful to those of you who have already signed up for that. As I've mentioned uh, for the last several episodes, you know, everything got monetized on the internet. God, I don't know how it happened, but it happened, right? Now you're paying out for all of the best content that you get, right? You want 12 different people on Substack. You got to pay for 12 different fees at 12 different rates and whatever, however all that works, right? But Counterpunch is still there. We've been there for almost 30 years. We'll continue to be there and provide something unique on the left. And that is something that you can support with a Counterpunch Plus subscription. We have all kinds of content. It's not just political analysis, although it's that. It's not just foreign affairs, although it's that too. It's cultural criticisms, essays, uh, uh, discourse from internal squabbles on the left in the United States, in Europe, elsewhere around the world. We have uh, articles from people writing in India, people from East Asia, people from Latin America, and on and on. Counterpunch really covers a wide range of topics with a wide range of voices from a wide range of perspectives. And I really think that's important and valuable. And if you agree with me, Counterpunch Plus subscriptions are the way to show your support. Uh, Get one for yourself, get one for a friend, get one for your enemy, whatever it is. Um, All right. We do appreciate that, but we do have work to do here. So 
This week, I have Shallon Van Tyne with me again. Shallon's been on the show before. We're going to talk movies. And, you know, the last time that Shallon was on Counterpunch Radio with me, it was a three-way conversation all about movies that leftists absolutely must see. And it was Shallon and I chatting with our dearly departed friend, Louis Project, uh, Lou passed away last year uh, after a bout with an illness. And of course, uh, Louis remains in our thoughts here at Counterpunch. And certainly I know that I speak for Shallon when I say that uh, the loss of Louis was a big, big loss for all of us. And so I guess in, in some senses, the conversation here this evening is dedicated to Lou. So on that somewhat sour note, Shallon, welcome back to Counterpunch. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on and uh, for all of your great work. In case I, well, I guess I breezed over it. Maybe I should introduce Shallon for those of you who don't know her. Shallon is an author and a researcher. She's a cultural historian specializing in American and world history. She writes uh, at a variety of places on her website. You can find all of her work, but also in Counterpunch. Get yourself a Counterpunch Plus subscription. You can read some of Shallon's work. You can also go to her website, shallonvantine.com. That's S-H-A-L-O-N-V-A-N-T-I-N-E, ShallonVantine.com. Shallon, welcome back. Thanks. So, uh, like I said, last time we chatted was with was with our pal Lou. Lou is, of course, no longer with us, but I know that he would just be absolutely ecstatic to talk about what we're going to talk about here this evening, which is, well, our favorite, all-time favorite Russian slash Soviet uh, films. And uh, Lou had such an appreciation for Russian cinema, for Soviet cinema. Uh, not not only that, of course, the politics. But uh, I know, Shallon, you are a student of uh, the Russian Revolution, of Russian history, of Russian film. So before we begin and before we start, and not exactly doing a ranking, but running down our list of top five Russian language films, why don't you give us, uh, make us into your students and give us a quick little intro course uh, to Russian cinema, Russian cinema history, and why it's important. All right, definitely. Well, uh, last time when uh, we talked about our our favorite uh, German films, I gave a book recommendation. So I figured I'd do that this time as well. Uh, so if any of your listeners are looking for sort of a comprehensive book to, that talks about um, Soviet cinema, uh, I'd recommend the book Kino, A History of the Russian and Soviet Film by Jay Lida. Um, so there's a book recommendation for your listeners on the topic. Um, but uh, just to give a brief overview of uh, Russian film before we talk about them in more detail, uh, Russian cinema was very important for two different reasons. One, um, for the history of cinema in general, and then also politically, um, because Russian cinema uh, was um, purely um, owned uh, and uh, controlled by um, the state. Uh, for, for Lenin, he said, of all the arts, for us, cinema is the most important. So he nationalized the film industry um, in 1919. So um, most of Soviet cinema throughout the, um, uh, throughout the Soviet period is going to be highly political. Um, so there's that. But there's also uh, the cinematic element, which is that Soviet cinema uh, contributed to how we make films just generally. Um, early cinema 
Um, for, for, for those of your listeners who haven't watched a lot of old silent films, um, some of the most earliest si uh, silent films um, were just a camera just sort of staring at a, uh, at a scene. They didn't have much editing, much cutting, uh, and much scene development. Um, fast forward to you know the early 20th century, you have the development of montage. And montage is not uh, what we typically think of, of of montage today, where we you know think of people need to do a bunch of stuff and 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 there's like a cheesy song playing and uh, a bunch of stuff gets done on screen. Really, Soviet montage is about editing. And uh, one of the key figures in the development of Soviet montage was someone who we'll talk about here today, uh, which is Sergei Eisenstein. Now, Eisenstein actually saw um, Soviet montage as a Marxist dialectical process. He, he envisioned that film would convey um, very core Marxist ideas. And you can, if you're interested in looking at some of his theories, you can uh, read his books, Film Form and Film Sense, that has those are a collection of his writings uh, that talk about his theory behind cinema. So um, from a cinematic perspective, Russian film contributed to the way that we edit films now um, in a way that's, you know, we take for granted now uh, because these things have just become sort of commonplace. Um, but before we talk about the films, I'll just briefly um, mention how Soviet cinema, or I should say Russian cinema more generally, went through a few different periods. Um, and you can see recurring themes um, throughout these different periods. And these, um, these moments in time really reflected what, uh, what the Soviet state wanted to uh, do in terms of the Communist Party, like what the goals were for the Communist Party that, that was reflected in the films. Um, so some of the earliest Soviet films from about, you know, the, the, from the revolution through, you know, the end of the 20s, um, you see a lot of the common themes of um, trying to solidify the Bolsheviks version of history and, and justify their leadership. Um, you see this especially in, um, for example, um, Podokin's um, The End of St. Petersburg or um, Alexandrov's and Eisenstein's movie October, where uh, figures like Lenin um, is, are portrayed as sort of godlike and um, Stalin is portrayed as a natural successor and Trotsky as an enemy. Um, you also see this uh, theme of uh, promoting international revolution and calling on workers everywhere to unite against their oppressors. So this, this um, idea uh, comes up in a lot of the um, early si uh, silent Soviet cinema, especially in Battleship Potemkin, which I think we're going to talk about today. Uh, and another subject that comes up a lot in this an uh, early Russian film is um, the, the power of people working together, this, this idea of collective action. Uh, you'll see in a lot of early uh, Soviet films that the protagonist is not an individual. The protagonist is actually the people uh, as a whole. Uh, that will change as, as Soviet cinema moves on and you get into the Stalin years, um, you see the change from a protagonist as the people to this um, very individualized, strong leader kind of figure. Um, but early Soviet cinema didn't have that as much. Um, but then you'll also see uh, a theme of 
uh, promoting the policy of collectivization. So um, themes that really sort of idealize uh, industrialization. Uh, one of the great um, examples of this can be seen in a movie that we're not going to discuss today, but the movie um, The General Line, also called The Old and the New, where it has uh, a a churning machine given to um, the peasants. And there's a woman um, sort of almost on her knees, uh, happy at the fact that this machine is making her life easier. And it's almost as if she's worshiping um, this machine and what in industrialization can do for them. So you start to see these themes throughout um, Soviet cinema. And then as you get uh, into the Stalin years, um, you see sort of a shift in theme where uh, the movies start to focus more on a strong leader character rather than um, a more collective kind of idea. And then after Stalin, during the thaw, you start to see uh, more of an incorporation of more psychological and personal themes uh, rather than um, these kind of collective and political themes. Um, so that's kind of a, a quick overview of um uh, of Russian cinema, so I think we should just actually talk about the movies and um, how they how they portray these themes throughout. I agree, and of course, since you've mentioned it, we might as well begin with my first film. Uh, you've already discussed it a bit: Battleship Potemkin, nineteen twenty-five, Sergei Eisenstein. Um, I would just note, uh, not that I'm tooting my own horn here, but because I am a Russian speaker, these films are particularly fun for me because I can also understand, um, uh, obviously not the silent films, but those that, that have dialogue, you know, I can follow along with these things. There is something that does get lost in some in subtitles. So unlike Chinese films or German films or whatever, I feel like I have a little bit of a window into some of the meaning uh, and subtext of some of these films. So I'll just say that. But um Battleship Potemkin, I mean, first of all, the movie is iconic to the extent that any movie can be iconic. I mean, some of the some of the most famous shots and scenes of this film have been parodied so many times and referenced in so many other movies that I think a lot of people may not even realize that where they came from originally, right? So famously, the Odessa stairs scene in Battleship Potemkin with the uh, baby carriage going down the stairs, which is referenced in uh, a number of movies. I could think of two, one being The Untouchables, one being Naked Gun 3, uh, <laughs> both of which reference that scene. Um, uh, and of course, um, there's 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 a political significance to this and i'm gonna not just hog the mic here i want to let you talk about that as well but um the political you already mentioned the class conscious filmmaking i think that potemkin maybe more than any other film well i don't want to say more than but as much as any other film potemkin demonstrates this i mean you don't have really an individual protagonist i mean you do have you know, one or two characters that are more foregrounded than others, but there is no real protagonist. There is no real uh, character development, no character arc of any kind. Really, it is the mass, right? And there's actually several masses, right? On uh, Throughout much of the film, there is the mass of the sailors, right? And this is shown uh, and I'm sure you you probably would talk about this as well, but this is shown in several ways, most most obviously by the elevated camera looking down, 
right? The camera is at the very, you know, up in the sky, essentially, looking down at many different individuals, all collectively organized and moving in a in action right this is the sort of cinematic manifestation of revolution in a sense right so you don't really see these individuals you don't really see them as 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 characters so much as representing masses masses of people in odessa famously uh you know when when the ship comes into the harbor and there's this this famous scene and you just see masses of people in movement the sort of dynamism of the uh soviet avant-garde um like i said no real personal drama no love story no uh <laughs> you know n- nothing really to speak of in that way um I mean, I want to get into some of the technical aspects of this, but uh, is there anything that you want to add to any of that, Shallon? Yeah, I would just say that, you know, a good way to think about it is almost as if uh, Eisenstein's working with Marxist archetypes, you know, almost like a uh, medieval morality play where the characters represent more of an idea rather than, you know, individual character types. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's deeply political. You know, I was, I said that I wasn't going to prep too much for this because I didn't <laughs> didn't really want to and I didn't have the time. But um, I did prep a little bit and I just wanted because I remembered there this being one of those films that very, very famous people had been quoted as speaking about because, you know, Battleship Potemkin was an international sensation, maybe maybe the f- maybe the first truly international sensation among among the films of this period. Uh, probably not the first, but one of the early international sensations. And when I say international, I mean truly international. It was seen by everybody across Europe, in the United States, the heads of MGM, uh, the uh, uh, the heads of the Nazi uh, uh, filmmaking industry. Goebbels himself is quoted as saying uh, about Battleship Potemkin, quote, this is a marvelous film without equal in cinema. Anyone who had no firm political conviction could become a Bolshevik after seeing the film. That, I think, speaks to some of the power of the film, because I think Goebbels is no slouch in understanding propaganda and its power. Right. Yeah. And and I I would just add that, uh, you know, this... This film is a great uh, example, too, of the way that Eisenstein used film to uh, convey these um, propagandistic messages. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, the notion of uh, Soviet montage, and Eisenstein uses this throughout this entire film. I I would also add that he does this a lot in his other 1925 film, Strike, which I think is, um, is another favorite of mine as well. Um, one of the great ways to see an example of this is in one of the early scenes, um, the, the men in the maggots scene, where it shows um, these um, sailors um, who are about to mutiny uh, because they've been given spoiled meat to eat. Uh, and you see uh, Eisenstein cuts from um, the, you know, the sort of distressed faces of these sailors two images of the spoiled meats and and the meat is it's disgusting it has like maggots actually crawling in it and that's what they're given and and then it also then cuts to you know the evil faces of these leaders who are giving them this bad meat so by by cutting doing this sort of rapid cutting style between these different images he's essentially making an argument um, that you know these people need to rise up and against their oppressors um so 
Eisenstein saw this, uh, saw film as this very unique way to get across um, Marxist ideas. And it's dialectical too, isn't it? I mean, the Absolutely. montage, the, the the montage itself is a is a sort of a form of dialectics, right? It's point counterpoint and 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 synthesis, or you know, however, how whatever terminology we want to use, right? You have you have the image followed by oftentimes its opposite followed by what the sensation that that creates, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think one of the great examples of this can really be seen in his movie Strike, where he shows. He shows these workers being oppressed and then he immediately juxtaposes that with shots of cows being slaughtered. And then it immediately goes to the workers um, then rising up against their oppressors. So um, and and Eisenstein does this, of course, purposely. And you can if you read his works, he talks about his theory of film as a dialectical process. Yeah. And I mean, we can think of a thousand examples throughout film history and, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, planes flying overhead to symbolize war or whatever it might be, right? All of those are in one sense or another references back to Eisenstein. Yep. Uh, You know, you mentioned the Odessa um, step sequence. Um, This is another example of that where you have um, in this scene and, and anyone who hasn't seen the film could easily find this exact scene on YouTube. So I, I recommend watching that. Um, but you have these soldiers who are marching down the steps in this very inhuman, almost like robotic display of oppression. Uh, you don't even see their faces. It's just pure oppression, <laughs> you know, marching down these stairs and they're slaughtering these droves of innocent people and, and creating this, this massacre. Um, but then you 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 go uh, you cut back and forth between the actual faces of the oppressed people, and I, I don't want to say too much about it so people can actually experience it for themselves. Um, but I, I will add that um, another aspect of this is that um, the score that uh, was played during these during these scenes um, also corresponded to the action being seen on film, which which again from a film history perspective was an innovative, um, was, was an important innovation. Um, what the, the person who originally, um, scored Battleship Potemkin was a man, um, Edmund Meisel and, uh, who, who used to actually do scores for Brecht's plays. Um, so of course another, um, left-wing person, um, but Eisenstein actually guided him in his composition to, um, make sure that the rhythm of his music um, corresponded to the action being seen on screen. Now, that's something that we take for granted now in film. It's commonplace. But again, you have to kind of put yourself back in time and think about early cinema history um, to see how innovative Eisenstein really was with this movie. There's so much more we could say about that. We could talk about Odessa, uh, which is where my family comes from. You could go back and listen to my uncle's interview on this show. We talk all about Odessa for an hour and a half about internationalism, what Odessa represented, how it was the most, probably the most multicultural of all cities in the Soviet Union, what that represents, et cetera. But I think we probably should move on from there. Um, Shallon, why don't you give us, why don't you give us one of your uh, films, I guess, since we're just doing the silent films, so we might as well just do that. What's what's your early Soviet film that you selected in your top five all-time Russian slash Soviet films? 
Well, in my top five, one of the first ones I picked was a 1930 film by Alexander Dovinsko, um, which is Earth. It's just titled Earth. Uh, now, this movie, I believe you can probably find it on YouTube. Um, uh, but essentially, there's not much of a plot in this movie. Uh, this um, th There's a somewhat of a plot. Essentially, it's looking at... Uh, the situation of the peasants, uh, which was an important, in Russian history, an important um, situation that the Soviets had to figure out. Um, so really this film is more about a celebration of life, of death, the harvest, um, but mostly the people working together collectively. So that theme that I mentioned earlier comes out especially so in this film. Um, but what is probably the biggest theme in this movie is uh, the idea um, that collectivization would be, um, would, would bring the people this new future um, and this, um, that collectivization was important and that the kulaks, the, the wealthy peasants um, were considered and are portrayed in the film as class enemies. So um, that's essentially the, the main idea of the film but really, um, the film is more um, of a sort of visual poem. Um, so it's a beautiful, beautifully filmed. Um, it's wonderful to watch. And it begins by showing the earth. <laughs> so the title of the film, uh, it shows these large fields and it shows, it starts by showing a woman next to a tall sunflower. And um, it's almost as if she is growing out from the ground herself. So you have these connections with the people and the land, um, these, this motif of fruits and flowers and vegetables and agriculture throughout the entire film, because that's really the, the key idea that they're trying to get across here. Uh, one of the most interesting things about Earth is that everything is contrast with its opposite. So you see all these clashes between old and new. Um, you see images of oxen versus images of tractors. Uh, you see these um, old class structures contrasted with communism. You see religion versus atheism. You see the individual versus the collective. So these, these um, uh, opposite ideas are contrasted throughout and juxtaposed throughout the entire movie, um, which are supposed to, you know, put you on the side of collectivization, of industrialization, uh, and um, put you thinking that the kulaks were essentially, as Lenin considered them, class enemies of the revolution. You know, this, this, uh, there's a number of things to talk about, and I'm actually going to reference back to uh, Dovzhenko and Earth a little bit later in talking about one of my other films. But um, the interesting thing uh, about this film and thinking, first of all, you mentioned, as you mentioned, uh, uh, flowers and fruits and vegetables. And I mean, ultimately at a broad level, it's not any secret, you know, fertility, right. And about, and mm -hmm. about women and about women's role. Women are, uh, you know, to a large extent, uh, you know, pr very prominent, not only in the film, but, uh, 
prominent as it relates to the peasants' place within uh, political, you know, the new political institutions of the new Soviet Union, right? I mean, 1930, you're already like 13 years later, but I mean, it's it's easy to it's easy to forget that the Bolsheviks weren't the you know weren't the uh, political party that was rooted in the peasantry they were rooted in the cities right the mm-hmm. left srs and other political formations that had been rooted in the peasantry in the countryside and so in some senses this focus on you know in earth on agriculture and on the peasantry is kind of one of the ways of sort of the Bolshevik propaganda, communist propaganda, basically saying like, no, we're not, you know, we, we, we understand what the peasants are and their place and role in society. Yep. In other words, that we're not, you know, we're not just, you know, urban Bolsheviks who are, you know, strictly understanding things in terms of a proletarian dictatorship, right? That there is class conflict in the countryside, that class war has to be imported into the countryside. I mean, that is what led to the mass collectivization and, well, the liquidation of the kulaks. Right. Yeah. Then the the idea of class conflict comes up a lot in this movie and also, um, Importantly, uh, the idea of generational conflict. So one of the thing, one of the contrasts you do see in the film is this um, conflict between the son and the father, um, and it shows the father as sort of thinking in the old ways of things, whereas the son is part of this new generation that um, what uh, would often be referred to as the concept of the new Soviet person, uh, which I'm sure you'll talk about when you talk about uh, another one of the films you're going to mention. But um, this, this idea comes up a lot in this movie. And you see that the, um, the father in the film is uh, hesitant to accept uh, sort of the new ways of, of machinery and, and whatnot. He's tied to these sort of old ways of working the land. One of the, um, one of the great scenes from this uh, that sort of illustrates this idea is this um, celebration of the tractor. When they get a tractor, it's being celebrated by the younger generation. Um, and at first you start to think, oh, it's, it's going to be a problem because when they try to start the tractor, uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> but then in this sort of funny scene, they, they decide to actually urinate in the tractor um, and because it didn't have any water in it. And then all of a sudden the tractor works and then it flashes to a, uh, a subtitle that, that says, may we prosper with the machines. Um, so you have these shots of agriculture being performed afterwards and it, it shows the sort of tedious, hard labor but then all of a sudden it, it shows how quickly things can be done and how efficient things can be done with the machine. So these conflicts, um, these multi-layered conflicts, I should say, you see throughout this this beautifully filmed movie. You know, it also reminds me as going back to something you said a few minutes ago, Shallon, about Lenin, Lenin's understanding of cinema as the most important of the, uh, you know, artistic media. Primarily, I think, uh, to a large extent, you know, you see that over and over again, where a lot of the 
let's call them theoretical sort of concepts uh, of Marxism and of Marxist analysis and things like that, that somehow become a little bit more universalized through film, right? So as you were talking mm-hmm. about, I mean, you wouldn't expect necessarily your average, your, your average peasant to understand the theory of combined and uneven development or something mm-hmm. like that, but they can certainly understand an ox next to a tractor. Right. And, yeah. and an important point about that, too, is that um, many of the peasantry at this time were still illiterate. So, um, you know, you couldn't really reach people with the written word as well as you could with um, the visual that they could see through through cinema. So film as is um, predominantly a visual medium um, and it's able to convey those ideas uh, universally without any written language. Absolutely. Well, um, as we're coming up against the clock, uh, I said we weren't going to spend the entire first half talking about only silent (laughs) films, and yet here we are doing exactly that. I promise you, listeners, we are not only talking about silent films from the 1920s. There are plenty more that we're going to discuss. But before we go to the break, I guess I will go to my next film, which is a silent film. It is the it, it is. Well, in my opinion, one of the most important films of the Soviet avant-garde, certainly uh, maybe one of the most important films of uh, any country in the 1920s, I, I would I would maybe say one of the most important films ever made, and that would be The Man with the Movie Camera, Ziga Vertov. Um, this film is, I mean, what do we want to say about it? I don't want to spend too much time on it because there's a lot's been written. It's been shown over and over again in many places. I'm sure many people have seen it. But uh, Man with the Movie Camera is not exactly a narrative film. It's not exactly a documentary. It's 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 kind of, I don't. It's it's kind of a a a, po- a visual poem, an ode to uh, the new the new Soviet Union, an ode to cities, an ode to proletarian uh, revolution, an ode to technology, uh, a, an urban pastoral, whatever you you know. There's mm-hmm. many different terms you could use to describe it, but basically, this is a film that uses. Um, many of the conventions that we would come to associate with the art movement of constructivism uh, that imports those into filmmaking for the purposes of not simply documenting a day in the life of a Soviet city, but in documenting something, something like the new Uh, what you were saying, the new Soviet person, right? The new Soviet citizen, right? And this is sort of the, the, I don't know, what would we call it, Shallon? The, the, the new day, the new day in the life of Soviet, of Soviet citizenry. I think that works. And, um, you know, the, the concept of the new Soviet person was essentially someone who had shaken off the shackles of the old world, you know, the things like religion and superstition or traditional bourgeois social values. And instead, there's someone who have embraced the new modernized Soviet world. So um, this is this idea is, you know, someone born into this new generation who's free from all that baggage of the old regime. And and in this movie, you see uh, young people sort of just living this life of, um, that's, you know, free of that, free of that old world. Um, you know, that their life is, has been 
um, changed by machinery and they, and they're active and they're athletic and they're, you know, modern, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and, and it's just sort of these, you know, splicing together of footage of all these people doing these kinds of things. But it's, it's, it's yes. And it is more than that too, right? Because it is right. also mm-hmm. the life of in, the, the life of humans, but it is also the life of the cities. It's the city itself as almost mm-hmm. a living organism right with the different trams and railways and things going in perpendiculars and parallels and all kinds of different directions so there's this kind of angular angular sort of uh uh, camera sometimes it's elevated sometimes it's down low sometimes it's moving sometimes objects are moving in front of it um we see we see a lot of that but to your point it's not just young people engaging in new activities you see a literal birth on screen mm-hmm. in this yes. film, you see actual death in this in in this film, right? Isn't I, I believe there's at least one or two animals that get slaughtered in the movie. Um, there is there is a lot of uh, sort of symbolic language that uh, is very politically charged throughout this film. And like I said, I mean, although Potemkin is historically probably the most important of all of the films of this period, for me, Man with the Movie Camera is the most artistically daring. It is certainly the most uh, avant-garde. And it is the one that you watch it today and you almost can't believe it was 100 years ago. Right. I, um, you know, you mentioned how, um, you know, Potemkin, it was, you know, important cinematically, but um, this film, Man with a Movie Camera, um, Vertov also created, like Eisenstein, he also created a lot of um, important innovations in film that are, are have, have been, um, have become commonplace today, such as like, um, multiple exposures, um, where, you know, you're seeing like, two different um, or, or more than two um, layers of things happening at the same time um, layered upon each other. This, this idea of um, fast motion and slow motion um, interacting with each other. Uh, The idea of freeze frames, which again, these are sorts of things that we take for granted in film now, but Vertov was one of the first people to um, push forward this innovation. Um, Jump cuts, you know, people who, uh, talk about cinema and they think about people like Godard who, you know, in the, in 1960 with his movie Breathless, you know, was very innovative with, um, with the French new wave and creating jump cuts. Well, Vertov also had jump cuts, um, in this movie that came out 30 years prior. Um, so there's all these, um, you know, the splicing of scenes together, all sorts of, uh, innovations from a cinematic perspective that Vertov is using in this film too. Yes, absolutely, and 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 again, men with the movie camera, like uh, uh, like Battleship Potemkin, also features the city of Odessa, which is uh, you know where my 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 family comes from, and of course, like I said, an international port city, one that had uh, a certain kind of cultural resonance within the Soviet Union that many other cities did not. I mean, you know, Leningrad, St. Petersburg uh, being, you know, the, the the longtime capital, the cultural heart of the country, Moscow, the old capital, the the historic, you know, the Kremlin, etc. But Odessa was one of those Western facing, Western facing cities uh, in Ukraine on the Black Sea. There were Greeks and Turks and and, and all kinds of people who were milling about in Odessa. So one of the things that you see in Man with the Movie Camera is sort of the complexity of 
urban life in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Vertov, Vertov was part of this group of filmmakers known as the the Kinoks or the Kino Eyes, you could say, um, which um, one of their main goals was to abolish any style of filmmaking um, that wasn't um, documentary style. And, and so it just kind of talks about how, you know, how important it was for them to portray these, you know, these things as real life. Like this is the real life um, promise that Soviet communism will bring. This is the real life promise that Soviet modernism will bring you. Um, and that was kind of one of the main ideas that he wanted to get across in this film. A cinema of material reality. Exactly. Okay, well, let's take a quick break. It's already, good Lord, we're at 37 minutes. Okay, let, we're definitely <laughs> going to take a break here. On the other side of the break, we have a lot to talk about, including films that actually have sound, believe it or not. So uh, right. we're, we're going to talk about a, a bunch more movies that you absolutely must see. Chatting with uh, Shalin Van Tyne about our all-time favorite Russian and Soviet films. Go to her website, Shalin Van Tyne. Dot com s h a l o n v a n t i n e dot com is the website we will be right back Sanders 
chatting with Shalin Van Tyne, going through our favorite all-time uh, Russian and Soviet films. So, Shalin, we've uh, we've delved deeply into the 1920s, the early period of Soviet cinema. Where are we going next? Well, let's go into the 1950s. Um, I'd like to talk about one of my all-time favorite films, uh, which is by uh, Michael Kalatazov. Uh, and I also apologize for any Russian names that I mispronounce in the show. I'm um, silently snickering and judging you from behind. Yes, I, I felt it. <laughs> that's why. Um, that's why I use uh, German names when we talk. There you go. Them. There you go. Um, well, this movie is a 1957 film called "The Cranes Are Flying." And I believe that uh, if, if anyone has a Criterion Channel subscription, I believe that it's a permanent fixture on there. Um, now, this movie um, is a beautiful movie, and I don't want to say too much about the plot, but I'll give a, a brief what the plot's about. Um, the plot is really about uh, this character, Veronica, and Boris, and they're in love. Um, but Boris volunteers for the war, gets sent on a dangerous mission. Um, and then the wedding that they had hoped for never comes to pass. Um, and we actually don't even really see Boris through mo most of the film, but he's sort of there, um, in, in these other ways through memories, through, um, through some other things that I, I, I won't go into. Um, but really what's important about this film in the history of Russian cinema is that this film came out after the thaw and you start to see uh, in this period of um, Russian film, you see less talk about these sort of collective, politi explicitly political um, sorts of things that you saw with things like Battleship Potemkin. Um, in, in these um, films that came out after the thaw, they're more focused on your psyche and psychological themes, more personal themes. Um, so this movie is more about how the cruelty of war um, and the damage of war um, affects the Soviet psyche as well as the individual psyche and, and all these sorts of effects of war um, that, you know, are, are not necessarily um, only political, but it also shows how war um, affects the person. Um, so what this film does is it really shows how this person's, how Veronica started with this very youthful optimism. Um, Boris starts with this very youthful idea of heroism. And I'll say that this is, of course, set during World War II um, or, or in Russia, the Great Patriotic War. Um, and what happens throughout the film is that these sort of youthful notions just get deteriorated away and um, they're just 
broken down and broken down. Um, and there are, there's so much visual symbolism and, and like many of the other films I like, uh, it's very much a visual, visually poetic film. Um, but, um, what happens in the end is that, um, Veronica is sort of redeemed, um, by, by getting a sort of symbolic replacement for the Boris that she loved. And, you know, you can also think about this in another way, which is that her sort of youthful optimism, which was destroyed throughout the film, um, there's sort of a sense of hope again at the end. So um, what do you have to say about this film, Eric? I know you recently rewatched it. Oh boy. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen cranes are flying at least, at least a half a dozen times. I'm, this is one of my favorite films. Um, one of the things that struck me the last time I watched this, which was just last week, uh, cause I was trying, I was trying to see all these movies before we talked and I of course <laughs> failed at that, but cranes are flying. I own on Blu-ray. So, um, what can I say about it that you didn't already mention? I think one is that it, it really, it helps to bring into a sort of, uh, stark relief for non-Russians, what world war two meant for Russian people. I mean that this was not only, you know, all out total war, as I'm going to talk about with two of my other films that I selected. Um, but that this was a war that destroyed a lot of young people and young lives. Right. And that is ultimately what the cranes are flying is about, right? This is, this isn't really about love. It's about the loss of love, the death of yes. love, right? It is, it is about losing one, losing the one that you love because of this great national trauma that everyone was going through. And one of the personal connections that I feel watching this movie is my own grandmother, because her story is very, very similar, not in the sense of the tragic loss of her love, but I mean, in the sense of the evacuation, you see the families, uh, the the women, the elderly, the children who are in the city of Moscow, which is where the lover, where, where the where the story begins. They are packed onto trains in one of the biggest evacuations in the history of. Uh, you know, the world. And uh, my grandmother was one of the millions of Soviet citizens who was packed up onto trains and sent uh, east of the Ural Mountains to spend out the years of the war in, you know, some remote town living in, you know, sub-zero temperatures, just as you see in the film. So it's very real. It's a very mm -hmm. real film that, that accurately captures a lot of the trauma and displacement of the war and yet simultaneously it's also an it's it's a visually exhilarating movie and i almost had forgotten how visually uh uh risky the movie is i mean this is a film that comes out after what Shallon, at least 20 years of of the soviet film industry languishing in a you know kind of a pretty reactionary certainly not innovative uh, uh position on the global stage and then here comes here comes this film with well let me just point to one particular scene of uh sexual aggression by the antagonist mm -hmm. uh against against veronica that is extraordinarily powerful as it's juxtaposed uh, uh, against what's, uh, you know, a bombing raid, a Nazi bombing raid that's happening outside the window and bombs are exploding in light and dark and flashes. And at the same time, he's sexually assaulting her. It's an extraordinarily powerful scene that it's almost shocking. Even, you know, 60 plus years later, it's, it's, it's quite shocking, actually. 
Yeah, I was I was just about to mention that scene. So, you know, you have this scene where so um, a little context. So Veronica, the main character, is in love with this uh, character, Boris, who goes away to war. Um, and in that scene where she um, she's essentially raped by his cousin, by Boris's cousin. Um, and then at the same time, you see this bombing. So this juxtaposition is obviously making a huge statement. Um, but there's sort of more to that. It's not that's not the end of this horrific event. Um, The cousin who rapes her um, essentially guilts her into uh, marrying him, um, tries to pressure her into marrying him out of guilt. So there's this sense that like, even though she was the victim, um, he is trying to make her feel guilty um, by almost as if, as if she let herself get raped. Um, yes. So it's, it's this awful psychological, um, damage that's being done to her. In addition to the actual damage, in addition to the actual war damage that's happening all at the same time. Well, and, 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 and just to add a little more context, people should understand this is after an extreme trauma has just happened to her not long before this, right? So she's, stumbling from one trauma to the next right and then mm-hmm. the, the this forced marriage is almost it's almost a form of capitulation yes and there's also this theme that you see throughout about guilt as well where um so you know she feels like she has portrayed boris even though throughout the whole film she she still believes that he's alive and and coming back but um but she still feels this sense of betrayal and the family, um, she doesn't tell the family, uh, Boris's family who take her in um, because she really has nowhere else to go because her family was, or she's orphaned because her family was killed in the war. Um, The the family kind of thinks she's a terrible person um, for, for being with the cousin, not knowing that, you know, he, he raped her. She doesn't tell them about that. Um, so she already has to live with this sense of guilt, even though she doesn't deserve it. And then she also works as a nurse helping soldiers. And there's these, um, these soldiers sort of talking amongst themselves about, about women who leave men when they've gone away to war. And, and they're just, um, one of the guys says that broads like that are worse than fascists. So, you know, you see, and then it shoots to her face and you see just this intense guilt, but she can't, you know, she can't tell anybody why she feels so terrible or, or even, um, you know, defend herself because it would require her explaining this entire thing. So there's so many layers of, uh, emotional trauma (laughs) that, that this film conveys in, in the, in a, a amazingly beautiful way somehow. Yeah, I have I have I have so much more I would say about that even that scene that you just pointed to specifically who it is that is delivering that monologue makes yes. it so much more painful. It's a that scene is just an absolute dagger in the heart to watch but yeah. um I I without without I, I'm trying not to do spoilers like 
Potemkin, it's like, okay, what am I giving a spoiler for a hundred year old movie here? But cranes are flying. <laughs> cranes are flying. I think people probably, many people may have not seen. And so I'm definitely going to not spoil it, but I will say that the scene that you just mentioned is a particularly tough one. Uh, as is the, one of the scenes towards the end when a soldier comes back from the war and finds her and uh, to deliver some, some news. And the way that that happens is really just soul crushing in a lot of ways. But um, the last thing I just want to point out on the on the on the cinematic side of this the technical side um there's a couple of things that 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 really struck me in this last time that i was watching that well they struck me every time but particularly this last time the there are two scenes in particular where veronica is going through a crowd trying Mm -hmm. to find Boris. One is when he is departing, when the, when the volunteers are getting onto the trains to go off to, you know, combat training and all of their loved ones are there seeing them off. And Veronica, for reasons that I won't explain here is, is late and is unable to get there. And so there's this scene and it's actually kind of harrowing in a, in a weird way where she's just winding her way through this mass of people and the camera is just track shot tracking shot along with her through mm-hmm. this crowd and what's amazing about it considering 1957 the sound editing i mean you go in and out of these conversations like as if you're just eavesdropping like you're there in the crowd it is a very sort of uh um viscerally uh sort of uh impactful scene and then just uh uh, similarly at the end of the film she's going through a crowd for yet another reason trying to find boris that is also extremely emotionally uh powerful but also cinematically it's it's visually powerful and the sound again this reminds me of what we were talking about with potemkin where in potemkin you don't really see the individual. You don't have an individual. It is simply the masses, right? Mm-hmm. As 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 a collective. Whereas here, 30, 33 years later, uh, Soviet film has progressed. The polit- politic, you know, the political situation has changed, and you do start to get the individual. You get the psychological aspects of these human beings. That component. Uh, I mean, that is what I think makes Cranes Are Flying one of the greatest films ever. I agree. <laughs> I completely agree. Well, good. I'm glad we agree on that. Okay, so then <laughs> we will we will move on to one of uh, to another film that I think is one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, I think many people would agree, even though I'm not sure it's even the best film made by this filmmaker. It is Andrei Rublev. It is uh, 1966. Andrei Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky, of course, the poster boy for the uh, Soviet New Wave. Tarkovsky, the uh, the the great uh, protege of Bergman. The you know the the toast of the European art house cinema circuit of the 1970s and 80s. Uh, if you're a film person and you know anything about Russian films, you probably know Tarkovsky. But Andrei Rublev, in my opinion, is much less understood by Western audiences. Uh, this is a film that, unlike Solaris and, and, and Mirror and Stalker, which are probably three of the better known Tarkovsky films, um, this film 
is very uniquely Russian in its orientation, in its subject matter, in the way that it approaches the subject matter. I mean, put simply, you know, this is a film that takes place over the course of a, of a lifetime in the early 15th century. So, you know, the, the, the very early 1400s we're talking about, you're talking about a period in Russia before a real modern Russia has emerged, before Ivan the Terrible, before the consolidation of what we would think of as modern Russia. And yet this film is not even really about Russia itself, um, you know, not in a political sense, but in, in some ways I would say it's probably the best illustrate. Well, I'm going to quote my own father here. My dad saw this movie at a movie theater in Odessa in 1972, I believe, which was when it was first released in the Soviet Union because it had been censored for, uh, I believe it was seven or eight years that they shelved the film uh, for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to go into now. But in any event, when it was finally shown, uh, my dad basically said that he sat in the movie theater just with his jaw on the floor. He said it was the most, it was the most uh, impressive film he had ever seen. It was the best film about Russia that he had ever seen. And he says that even to this day. So what is it about Rublev that is so extraordinary? Well, number one is that I think it really touches on what Russia is and what is the essence of, quote unquote, Russianness. Um, one of the ways that it does that is by sort of talking about this, uh, you know, the, the idea of trying to break free of uh, forms of oppression and control, right? You see that from the very beginning of this movie. The movie is broken up into essentially like chapters with a prologue and an epilogue. The prologue and the epilogue are not even really part of the story proper. They are essentially almost like little shorts that act as something like bookends. But basically the movie is, for all intents and purposes, it's about art. It's about the creation of art and it's about the ability or the, the desire to essentially create art and to birth art across generations. And what you see from the beginning of the film, Andrei Rublev is an icon painter. That is somebody who is who goes from town to town, city to city, painting cathedrals, painting icons of, of uh, you know, Christ and so forth. And um Rublev is traveling across a country that is just in the in the early stages of being finally and permanently controlled by the Orthodox Church, right? You still, and there's a very powerful scene in this film of pagans living in the forest. And these pagans and what they represent, I won't get into all of the all of the subtext of that, but the pagans of the forest represent something like a wild and untamed nature, right? One that uh, Christianity and Eastern Orthodox Christianity does not abide. Pagans as sort of wild beings free of the control of Christian morality. Andrei Rublev, of course, being this devout uh, Christian artist. Um, I don't, like I said, I don't want to give, a, I don't want to give away too much, but this is really a, a movie about freedom. It is a movie about hope. The movie begins with uh, essentially, uh, you know, an inventor, a tinkerer, uh, in trying to invent a hot air balloon to escape from his 
surroundings, from his landscape. And what happens to him and his brutal end is, I think, a very good introduction to the film. The film is very brutal in a lot of ways. Some of the scenes, particularly when the Tatars come and uh, sack a particular village, is extraordinarily brutal. But ultimately, I think the film, it's, it's, it's about... It's about Christ, Jesus. It's about sacrifice. Um, let's see, Andre, one of the quotes I, I wrote down from Andre Rublev talking about Jesus, where he says, perhaps he was born and crucified for one reason, to reconcile God with man, right? And this spiritual journey and the artist's journey, um, that's what Rublev is about. It's about it's 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 about something that is uniquely Russian. And you see this in Dostoevsky. You see it in Russian literature. You see it in Russian poetry, in Russian, uh, in Tolstoy and elsewhere. Right. The crushing of hope and the need to struggle to remain hopeful. This is this is what Rublev is to a large extent about. Um, I don't know. I could go on and on. You've <laughs> seen you've seen it, Shallon, right? Oh, absolutely. Many so times. Talk, so tell me about, okay. So tell me, tell me about Rublev. Tell me what you think and maybe what you think I might've not mentioned there. <laughs> I mean, well, where does one start with Tarkovsky anyway? Um, but Tarkovsky, one of the great directors of all time and especially of Russian cinema. And one of the things that makes him so unique is that of course he came, like you mentioned during the time when um Russian film was sort of undergoing a different style and change. Uh, Tarkovsky, and you know, he he didn't focus so much on politics. He focused on, although don't get me wrong, political everything is always saturated throughout, whether it's explicit or not. But um, he he definitely focuses on the psyche in in all of his films. And one of the things that sort of sets Tarkovsky apart. Um, and this is just generally speaking, is he has a very sort of transcendent relationship to nature. And um, and he in every one of his films, nature plays a key role. And, and oftentimes nature is sort of living in a universe unto itself. You know, humans are doing human things and nature is sort of unaffected and indifferent to it. Um, you can see this in... Um, in Andrei Rublev, you, you, you mentioned how the film is broken up into eight chapters. Um, those can also be broken down into four different thematic sections based on the natural elements as well. So, you know, you have this first section that focuses on wind. Uh, one of the, you know, a, a early scene in the film shows um, a, a, man, a medieval man like on a parachute. And um, there's this, you know, great sort of aerial shot. Uh, that you get. And also you get the sense to it, keeping in mind that this is during the middle ages. <laughs> um, so this is like a man is flying. Um, and then you see the next section that focuses on water. Um, all those scenes have rain in them and rivers. But can we back up, Shallon? Why yes. is he flying? Why is he flying? Well, what do you think? Well, be, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to ask that in a in a trick question sort of way. I mean to say that he's flying because, on the one hand, he's quote unquote trying to invent the hot air balloon in a sense, right? right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, he's trying to escape. Yes, there's and, a massacre yeah. going yep. on. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and yeah. So so to me, it's just this this. this this need to escape from the crushing, the, 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 the forces of your impending doom. 
Yes. Yeah. And that, like you said, that that is, you know, this, this theme of um, artistic freedom um, goes throughout this entire movie. And of course, you know, these, this corresponds with Tarkovsky making films and he had a hard time making films uh, in the Soviet Union at this time um, because his films were seen as often too formulistic and, uh, and um, or excuse me, too formulaic and not formulaic. That's not what I meant to say. Um, uh, too, too artsy. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, so, you know, you have this character who is, uh, you know, trying, like you said, trying to escape from this repression. Um, and, and you do see that throughout the whole movie. Uh, and I'll just mention that, you know, you see these other sort of natural themes of, you know, fire, earth, water, fire. Um, one of the last scenes, I won't go too much into it, but they're, they're building this, um, bell in, in the ground, in the, clay um so there's this is a this uh connection with nature is something that you see throughout tarkovsky's films generally but in this particular film he's especially concerned with the nature of art and creating art and what that means um and you'll you'll notice this um sort of contrast between uh rubelev and uh his apprentice foma throughout the film and uh, for, for those of your listeners who aren't too familiar with sort of um, art history from the medieval period, medieval painters um, and, and artists up, in, uh, up until the Renaissance weren't really considered um, artists in the way that we think of artists now as like these sort of individual sort of genius-like figures that um, the, most artists up through um, throughout the medieval period were considered um uh, skills, skilled workers, you know, you know, they, they were artisans. They, they, um, learned a particular skill of painting and icon art was, uh, didactic. I mean, you know, it, it was meant to convey specifically Christian themes. It wasn't meant to, um, delve too much into the emotions of the subjects. Uh, and, and that's why when you when you do get to the Renaissance period, you start to see that change as as Renaissance artists started looking back more towards the ancients and focusing more on uh, emotion and things like that. So you have this character towards the end of the Middle Ages, and I, I don't know if you mentioned this ar already or not, but Rublev was a, a real person. So you know this isn't a made up character. So you have this person through at the end of the Middle Ages who is um, you know sort of caught between the age where art was just a skill, which is, you know, portrayed in the character of Foma, um, who just is, is a very sort of salt of the earth kind of person, just thinks of art as a skill that you learn, um, versus wanting to express yourself, wanting to express your artistic creativity um, and, and express your sort of inner knowledge um, and uh, enlightened ideas through your art, but are sort of repressed. Um, there's this great scene where Rublev is sort of contemplating the meaning of art and he's trying to figure out, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something along the lines of, you know, is art for God or is art for profit? Um, and, you know, of course we can relate to what he's talking about there. I mean, is, is art something that is um, a transcendent creative experience and, and it's good in its own sense or um, something that glorifies, you know, 
good values or, or whatever you want to call that? Or is it just a, a commodity? Um, so, you know, these are, these are, there's so much, so much happening in, in this movie. It's like you said, it's hard to kind of really talk about everything. Oh, I mean, yeah. And don't get me wrong. The movie is very, very long. This is not, this is not a, you know, very quick affair. Um, and I just want a couple, I just want to highlight a couple of other points for us to discuss here before we move on. Um, one is, as, as you were kind of talking about, and, and I think I was mentioning as well about it, it is about art and about artists and about intergenerational art, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is to say the passing of skills and knowledge and of, uh, you know, sort of the mantle of artistic creation from one to the next, right? Because the story essentially follows the 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 arc of Andre Rublev from the time when he is I don't know if he's technically an apprentice but a young you know a young painter to the point where he essentially is sort of passing on you know this sort of uh artistic spark to the next one as you were alluding to the story of the you know the the bellmaker right mm -hmm. and um and at the end i mean without giving anything away i mean andre also kind of reemerges from a very long self-imposed uh exile from his art to sort of rediscover his art and ultimately you know the 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 movie is is it's about russia and it is unique to russia but it is also about art and artistic creation and moreover i think it's about vision it's about ways of seeing right because like for instance and and i think tarkovsky's films are all in a sense about ways of seeing and different ways of seeing things right because uh andre rublev rather uh sort of um shockingly or visually sort of uh smacks you across the face when it switches from black and white to color yeah and and, and tarkovsky does that in multiple films of his where that move in the mirror from that sepia black and white to color or in stalker from uh the uh black and white outside the zone color inside the zone i mean this mm -hmm. is this is tarkovsky and this is tarkovsky asking us to really think about how we see and how we view what it is that's on the screen and what it is that's in our own minds. You know, there's something that came to mind when you said that, which is uh, this, this focus on a sort of, you know, visionary kind of character. And um, it it's reminds me of the way Herzog uh, often focuses on those kinds of characters, people who are, in some ways, kind of like a holy fool kind of character, um, which Tarkovsky loves that holy fool concept, which comes up in all of his films as well. Um, but, you know, someone who sort of has dreams bigger than himself um, is something that you can see in things like Herzog's Fitzcarraldo or Strozik, you know. Um, so um, that kind of idea um, it also plays out in this movie as well. It's just this someone who... Um, can see beyond uh, his his own time, his own limitations. There's so much more to say about Rublev, but we're well <laughs> over an hour and we still have more films to talk about. So do yourself a favor and get yourself a uh, Blu-ray, 4K, Ultra HD, whatever <laughs> you can to get a good, good, good print of Andre Rublev and spend three hours of your life in uh, engaging with it because it's so awesome. All right, Shallon, what's your next one? 
Well, um, what would you think? I could talk about another Tarkovsky film or I could talk about um, another Kaltazov film. So what would you prefer? Oh, why don't you surprise us? All right. Well, how about let's go. Uh, let's go to 1964 after uh, after. Um, well, we'll go to 1964 and we'll talk about a film called I Am Cuba or often referred to as Soy Cuba. Um, now, this is a Soviet Cuban production um, by Michael Kaltazov. Um, so it is shot in black and white. Um, now, I do want to note, though, it's not just any black and white. The film um, was obtained from actually Soviet the Soviet military. So it's an infrared film. Um, so it has a very unique sort of coloring um, or, or saturation, I should say, um, where, you know, the, the sky almost looks very white. Um, and the shots are in these like very dark, darkly contrasted shots. And, and a lot of these shots are, um, filmed in these very wide angle shots. Um, so, um, it's a Soviet and Cuban production film, essentially about, uh, it's not about the Cuban revolution, but it's sort of about the Cuban revolution in spirit. It's the spirit of the Cuban revolution, I'll say. Um, but this film is, um, essentially broken down into four vignettes, which seems to be kind of a common theme that we keep coming across. Um, but four vignettes, the first one um, is focused, each one focuses on a particular person, but the person uh, very similar to Eisenstein earlier represents a larger idea, of course. Um, the first one focuses on Maria, who's a prostitute at an American bar in Cuba. Um, the second one, um, focuses on this guy, Pedro, who is a farmer. Uh, the third one focuses on a student, Enrique, who's a revolutionary student. And the fourth vignette focuses on um, this character, Mariano, who is a peasant who eventually joins the resistance. Um, so this screenplay was actually written, um, and I should note that Che Guevara was actually a unofficial advisor to this film. It was... Um, commissioned by Cuba, um, by Kaltazov after having seen the, the cranes are flying. So, you know, that, that movie that he made, uh, of course, made a big impact, uh, from a cinematic perspective on, um, on Cuban film. So this screenplay was written to convey four main ideas. Um, first, the effects of colonialism on Cuba, uh, second, it was meant to convey the tragedy of um, peasant life. Um, third, it was meant to convey um, the, the worker and the student struggle. And then lastly, it was meant to convey the, the struggles in the mountains and the, finally the, the triumph of socialism. So this, this film uses these different kinds of uh, perspectives that all come together as a whole to represent um, to represent socialism. Um, so the, you know, just like how in uh, Eisenstein's strike or Battleship Potemkin, the, the protagonist is not an individual character so much as an idea, uh, it's the same here. And the, the protagonist of this film is revolution. Um, so that's really the, the main idea. And when you first uh, the first opening shot is this amazing shot. Um, I'm not even actually sure how it was completed. Um, that pans over all these wealthy foreigners uh, and 
um, they're they're at like a, a pageant um, where you know these Cuban women are sort of walking through a pageant. They they look sort of unhappy having to do it, but they're you know entertaining uh, wealthy Westerners, and uh, you know it pans through this whole image of these sort of you know this grotesque kind of wealthy um, colonial people. And then it sort of pans out and you start to see um, Cuba as a whole. And then this, there's a sort of disembodied voice uh, that comes up over it saying that, you know, I am Cuba. And, it, and Cuba speaks to you as if Cuba is a person uh, and talks over this, uh, you know, saying things like, thank you, Senor Columbus, you took my sugar and left me tears. And so this is sort of the introduction to this beautiful movie. Um, and it essentially goes through these different vignettes um, to convey all these ideas that I just mentioned, um, essentially in the end, hoping that you understand that revolution is required. Um, so that's that's kind of the summary of this film, but I will just note that this is another film that is visually very poetic. Uh, it's one that you should watch for yourself and not just you know read a summary of because that would totally do it an injustice. <laughs> That's that shot during the beauty pageant. I mean, what the hell, man? How? <laughs> how? I don't even know how that shot was done. Um, Seriously, like I, it's, it's like it a, doesn't it's make like any a long sense. Tracking shot, but yeah. then it goes out into uh, Cuba, into, almost into like midair. So. <laughs> yeah. It's like floating <laughs> I don't in the air. That shot well, bad. what's interesting is that is that if you watch it now, I mean if you if you didn't know better, you'd think they had a drone. You know yeah. what I mean? Like how are they doing that? It's incredible. Right, but this is 1964, so I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, one of the, well, let me just ask you, I mean, I, it's been a while since I saw this. Um, this is a movie that I saw a, a few times actually, but not in many years. So remind me, um, first of all, answer this question, talk a little bit about how the film demonstrates us imperialism, Yankee imperialism, because I think that this is one of those, one of those rare instances where this is almost as overt as it will ever get in a Soviet film. Absolutely. So um, let me just kind of talk about some of the scenes that will that will answer your question. So one of the first scenes um, focuses on this character, Maria, and she she has a um, a, a love interest. Uh, I don't remember his name. I apologize. Um, and you only see him for a moment. And um, he sort of see, sees her as this sort of virginal kind of character. But then you uh, fast forward, you see that she's actually a prostitute in a bar meant for Amer meant for wealthy Americans. And, you know, this it, it sort of shows all of these um, Cuban women who are prostitutes because they they really have to. It's the only way that they can make any money. And um, the, the way that they're treated, they're, they're just treated like they're just such commodities. You know, they're um, you know, they're sort of passed around between um, between one American to the next. Um, they're sort of forced to, um, there's this one scene where they're, they're forced to do this dance and it's like a, a it's like a Cuban dance, but they dance it around a, a kind of um, more indigenous statue. And meanwhile, you have like these sort of 
you know, laughing Americans who are just seeing this all as entertainment, even though she's doing something that's a more um, traditional indigenous dance. So all these juxtapositions are just throughout this entire film. And in this particular vignette, uh, the, the, her customer, the, the American who purchases her for the night, um, wants to see where she lives. And against her better judgment, she decides to actually take him to where she lives. And she has to go through all this sort of um, urbanized area and then finally gets to this um, rundown shack in this village where she actually lives. Uh, and there's this horrifying scene where like after they they're finished, um, the, the American sees this cross that she wears it's a beautiful cross that clearly means something to her in a religious, deeply spiritual sense. Um, and he wants to purchase it from her just because he collects, he collects, um, you know, he collects crucifixes. Um, so it's this, you know, he's taking this um, truly um, both spiritual and sentimental object of hers and treating it like it's just something that he can throw in his collection. And he gives her like two American dollars for it, for this thing that's probably her most valued possession. Um, and that's just the first vignette. Um, each each one, uh, you know, really portrays this, um, the effects of colonialism on, on Cuba. There's this um, wonderful scene where, in the scene that talks about the, um, the, the peasants, where um, the, the United Fruit Company um, tells the farmer who has lived on this land and worked this land his whole life, tells him, oh, you know, your house isn't yours anymore. We sold it. Um, and so he, I don't even really want to say too much, but let's just say that he, <laughs> he definitely takes uh, matters into his own hands as he should have. Um, but just this sort of nonchalance with the United Fruit Company being like, oh, well, you know, this land, uh, you know, you've worked and lived here your whole life, but we just sold it. So it's no longer yours. So get out. And I mean, every, yeah, pretty just, much, pretty yeah, much. I, I can't even really describe so much of it in words. And there's so much tragedy that's in the faces of these characters as well. Um, so absolutely watch this. You know, this movie was also inspired by one of my favorite Eisenstein films that not many people talk about as much called Que Viva Mexico which is also very visually poetic kind of movie. So if that kind of uh, imagery is the kind of thing that you're into, I, I highly recommend watching this one. One last comment on this before we move on, because we're so far behind schedule here. But um, <laughs> uh, the other thing that I really, really connected with on this film when I first saw it, when I was in college, and then again, probably in about 2006 or so, um, is is the poet is the poetics of the film i mean it's mm -hmm. not just a visual poem quote unquote i mean it was literally co-written by the most by the preeminent poet of the soviet union of the time yevgeny yevtushenko who was you know an international superstar at that yes. point you know and and so <clears throat> you're talking about a film that enlists, you know, an internationally recognized uh, master film director, Kalatazov, who won, you know, the grand prize at Cannes with Cranes Are Flying, what, 
six years earlier, uh, seven years earlier. Uh, you're talking about the preeminent Soviet poet of the of the day, Yevtushenko. So this is something that is unique. I I, I almost can't. I I don't know if I can even think of a parallel to that where that that brought together a master filmmaker and a master poet to make a movie like this. Sure. Yeah. It's it's incredible. Well, all right. Uh, so let's move on so that we can get uh, done with this episode just shy of four hours. Um, I'm kidding. It's only an hour 20 here, folks. <laughs> the next film that I am going to discuss here, 1977, The Ascent, directed by Larissa Shapitko. So a lot to say about this film. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to cut some of the analysis short a little bit and just point to a couple of things that I think are really interesting and pointing back to something earlier in our conversation. Uh, trivia time for you, Shallon. Here's a curveball. Oh. Do you know who Larissa Shapitko studied under? Wasn't it? It was one. It was a. Uh, it was Kalatazov, wasn't it? No, it was not. Or it was. Uh, I do it, know this at some point, but remind. No, that's me. okay. That's okay. I put you on the spot. I didn't give you a heads you up. You did. Right. She studied. She studied under Dovzhenko. Okay. All Dovzh right. Dovzhenko. Dovzhenko was her that. teacher. I, I, of course, Eisenstein was famously, you know, a teacher. Was a, you know, taught many future filmmakers, and and similarly, Dovzhenko also taught. And Shapitko was one of his students. Um, she tragically dies in a car accident. I think she was only forty-one. I want to say it was nineteen seventy-nine. So it was just after the ascent had come out. The ascent was an international sensation. This film was, uh, you know, regarded as, uh, you know, almost an instant masterpiece. It was, I believe it won the top prize at the Berlin, at the Berlin Al Film Festival uh, that year. I believe it was also special jury prize at Cannes. I'm not positive about that. But anyway, it was, it was received to international acclaim. Uh, Shapitko is the, you know, was, was the partner of LM Klimov, who is another of the famous uh, Soviet filmmakers of the new wave period along with Tarkovsky they all uh, knew each other um, I don't know if they necessarily worked together but they certainly went to film school together were aware of each other uh, and and each other's work so in briefly talking about the ascent this film is 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 really unique for a lot of reasons one of which is obviously the almost overt religious uh, subtext of the film. I mean, the, the, the film, the, the ascent references, I, I believe it's the ascent to Calvary. I want to say um, it, it references uh, the Holy Trinity. It references any number of Christian symbols and Christian ideas, which is powerful when you consider this is 1977 in the Soviet Union. This is not the kind of thing that you're supposed to speak about in in you know in a film in the Soviet Union. So this was in just in that sense alone somewhat transgressive. Uh, was Shapitko herself uh, examining her own spirituality? Maybe was she using? religion as a means of commenting on political themes that she might not have otherwise been able to comment on. I suppose that's an argument that people make. Um, <clears throat> in thinking about the ascent, the cinematography is paramount. I mean, this film, this is just, it's, it's viscerally uh, incredibly powerful. I mean, what's the color palette? White and gray and more white. 
basically. I mean, yeah. the movie is white. It is it is in the bleakest of bleak uh, winter. It is all filmed outdoors in the cold. Uh, Shapitko had talked about uh, why she made those decisions, why she put her actors and her crew through this like grueling ordeal. I mean, they're making a film in essentially in Siberia uh, in the middle of the wintertime. Um, you know, so I, I did, I did write down a great quote from her. Um, she, she, I believe this was in one of the great interviews that is on the Blu-ray edition of the ascent. And I think it's also on the criterion channel. You could see a great interview with Shapitko and a German interviewer where she's talking about this film. And she says, quote, the annals of war made us realize that our most horrible ideas of what it was like paled before the inhuman realities with the years our memory spares our nerves and blunts our pain we have tried to not only understand the pain but to relive it right this film is in a sense uh you know like a passion play almost right this is a the, there there there's not a lot of hope here there's not a lot of joy there is a tremendous amount of pain and suffering and anguish uh what you don't see in the movie i don't know uh i don't know if uh shallon you noticed this or i didn't even notice it really the first time i saw the movie but there's almost no germans Mm, I mean, yeah. they, 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 they really don't exist in the movie to the extent that you know they're they're there they're there as like an off-screen presence and so it on the one hand, it's about like sort of the brutalities of World War II, but it's not even really about World War II in a sense, because it's not even really the Germans who are doing this. It's almost them doing it to themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's about kind of treachery and, and hatreds and fear and pain and suffering and punishment and oppression and all of these things that can be meted out one, uh, one against the other, neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend and so forth, right? So the film, it's not even, it's a war film, but it's not really a war film. It's brutal, but there's not a tremendous amount of on-screen violence. Um, there's a direct reference to uh, the film that you mentioned earlier, Dovzhenko's Earth. Her teacher, of course, she references it right in the opening scenes with mm -hmm. the, with the, the, the fence posts and the fence post that you see in the ascent is, is a direct nod and reference to the fence post that you see in the opening scenes of earth. And that reference would have certainly not been lost on, you know, educated uh, film viewers who are watching the right. film at the time. Um, what else do I want to say about it? Like I said, it was shot in the middle of winter to trying to recreate the conditions that these people faced. Uh, it's brutal. And I'm going to hold off on talking too much about the brutality because my next film is even more brutal. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't have really much to add to it. It's, it's one of those, again, another, I know this is a common theme with, the movies that we like, but uh, it's one of those ones that's best to see and rather talk about. But um, I think uh, Shepetko said that, um, you know, she wanted all of her, all of her actors who, who were all non-professional actors, I should add, um, to have an internal justification for everything that they did. So, you know, the film, even though it takes place, like you said, in wartime, it's not so much about war as it is about you know, these sort of very human, universally human internal conflicts. Uh, and you, you have, um, you know, people trying to weigh out 
um, you know, the best action between, you know, loyalty versus, you know, betrayal versus self-survival and, um, and then self-sacrificing versus, you know, guilt and, um, and self-imposed suffering. So there's, there's all this, um, while it's conveyed through, you know, the, the historical event of war, um, it's really more so about, you know, the internal psyche of, of everyone. Um, and like you mentioned, she, she had her actors do this in one of the most severe winter environments that you could to, to really capture this. You know, I'll just say one thing. Um, you mentioned how there is that visual nod to earth, um, and um, that it's this uh, funeral procession that you see in Earth that there's a, a direct visual nod to that in this movie. You, your listeners might also be familiar with the director Dreyer, who directed um, one of the great films of all time, The Passion of Joan of Arc. And he also did a film called Vampire uh, about a vampire that does the almost the exact same scene. Um, so if you wanted to sort of compare those those two images, that's something to do. Um, I will just note, there's one um, thing that really struck me about this film is it's, I found it very unsettling. So for your listeners who like horror films, um, they might like this aspect of it, which is that there are many scenes where she has uh, the character's face stare directly into the camera. And it has this very, um, very unsettling effect. I don't know if you, you Oh my God. That. Yes. Oh my God. Thank you for mentioning <laughs> yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this, you know, it, it seems so simple, you know, to just have, uh, the character stare into the camera like that, but it's very unsettling. Um, and I could see that it probably influenced, um, some horror directors later on. I, I, ne I didn't look that up to verify that, but that's just my guess. No, I think you're dead on. Uh, that also really struck me too the first time I saw this. I was pretty late to this movie, to be honest with you. I, you know, I considered myself something of a student of Russian film and of Soviet film, and I didn't see this one until fairly recently, and only rewatched it, uh, you know, a couple of months ago. And man, yeah, this movie is uh, takes an emotional toll. That's for sure. For sure. All right, Shallon, uh, what do you got? What's next? Well, um, I think I can talk about my last film, which is another Tarkovsky film, uh, which is The Mirror. Um, this came out in 1975, and I will just, you know, tell your listeners how we both fought over <laughs> choosing this movie into our list, and I won. So, <laughs> um, but Tarkovsky's The Mirror, probably one of my all-time favorite films ever, um, this movie, again, like most Tarkovsky films, it doesn't have a very solid plot. Um, it's more of a visually poetic movie. But this film, if you wanted to describe what it's about, it's essentially, um, it's about a dying poet and you're sort of floating like a ghost through all of his childhood memories. Um, that's the best way that I could think of to describe this film simply. Now, you never actually see the protagonist in this film. Um, you only know who the protagonist is through his own dreams and his own memories. Um, so that's a very unique way of focusing the film on, on the character without ever actually showing you the character. Um, and of course, this is a highly autobiographical film. It's not explicit, you know, it's not 
directly, but it's um, pretty obviously autobiographical. And, and Tarkovsky does talk a lot about um, the connections between this film and his own life uh, in, in some of his books. But um, I will note that you, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, the connection with Tarkovsky and, and father figures and generational uh, kinds of ideas. Well, this also comes up a lot in this film. Uh, you'll, throughout the film, Tarkovsky uses his own father's um, poetry. So his father was a well-known uh, Russian poet, Arseny Tarkovsky, and his poems are used throughout the film as sort of narrate scenes that don't necessarily correspond with, uh, with what you're seeing on the film, but of course there's a uh, thematic correspondence there. Um, but essentially the, the film, it's nonlinear, uh, you know, it doesn't go in order. Uh, you're sort of floating around, um, seeing different memories and dreams of this poet. And then it does flash back and forth between the contemporary world and what he's remembering from his childhood. And like you mentioned earlier, he does slip between color and black and white and different sort of film stocks to kind of convey these issues. And he uses um, these sort of lo loose flow of, of visual images to kind of, it kind of gives it a stream of consciousness um, technique. So it's almost like, it's almost like watching modernist literature, if you want to think of it like that. Um, the film does kind of jump between a few different time periods. You, you see the the pre-war years, um, you see the 1940s, you know, during during World War II, and then you see the post-war years in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so you, you see different memories, such as the evacuation from Moscow to the countryside during the war. You see uh, his withdrawn father um, and a lot about his mother. Um, and then it's also contrasted with his contemporary life. Um, you know, he has a few conversations with his um, ex-wife. Um, now, one of the interesting things about uh, this film is that the wife and the, or the ex-wife and the mother are played by the same actor. So there's a heavy Freudian kinds of idea happening throughout this film where he often conflates the mother um, with his ex-wife, and you're not exactly sure if you're um, if you're learning about the wife or you're learning about the mother, and 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 so those lines are sort of blurred, which makes sense because the the film is all about memory and and language, and as we as we know, memory is highly deceptive, and we we can't really rely on memory. To give us an accurate picture, we we color our own memories. Uh, and uh, if if your listeners are interested in Tarkovsky and sort of his views on film, they might be interested in reading his book Sculpting in Time, which talks a lot about this. And one of the main themes in that book is the nature of memory and and how it's unreliable, how we color it. Um, he he even says that you know we color our memories with poetry. Um, so this sort of idea comes up a lot in this movie. Uh, and, you know, I'll also note, like I mentioned earlier with Andrei Rublev, um, there's a lot about man's connection to nature as well. Uh, and not in sort of a sort of obnoxious hippie way. Um, it's in a very transcendent, natural, 
nature is sort of indifferent, but all around you sort of a sublime kind of way um, that, that you see throughout this entire film. Um, so yeah. So what, you know, I know we, we both love this film. So what do you have to say about it? No, I, I mean, you, you hit all the major points. I'm going to throw a couple of uh, questions or discussion points out at you first. Um, you said about nature. I think that's a great, I think that's a great point. I mean, there's a number of scenes in this film. Tarkovsky actually in several of his films is, uh, he likes to use this motif of, uh, you know, fire in the middle of a rainstorm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and their famous scene in the mirror of this, I think it's his boyhood home or it's the, yeah. one of the, you know, one of the, one of the structures on his boyhood, uh, home property, uh, on fire in the middle of a rainstorm has this incredibly poetic sort of juxtaposition that just sticks with me. Now, one of the things I want to ask you this going back and forth between black and white and color, color in the contemporary world, black and white in the sort of, uh, pre-war period, I always kind of, and and I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I always kind of read that as also something like, you know, the, 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 the darkness and bleakness of the uh, 1930s and the Stalin period, right? Because I mean, isn't Tarkovsky also commenting on that in the film? I mean, the mother, you remember how the mother frets Mm -hmm. about making a very minor mistake in the copy editing, and then it goes to the print and then she's like running around, like she's going to be summarily executed Mm -hmm. or something, right? Like this, this sort of, this sort of extreme anxiety all Mm -hmm. colored in these dark shadows. And I don't know, is it sepia? It's probably not sepia. That's not the right word, but you know, that's sort of- Yeah, I think he does use sepia. Yeah, it's like a a sepia tone and this like very dark and bleak visual Mm -hmm. appearance that to me is so reminiscent of that generation thinking back on their parents' generation. My, 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 you know, my, my father, the same way in talking about, you know, his father going through the period under Stalin and how it was for, you know, whatever. Anyway, what is your take on those scenes, the flashback from color in the present to the black and white of the past? Is there a political connotation to that? Am I reading too much into it? What do you think? I don't think you're reading too much into it. I, I think there definitely is. Um, I'll also add to that, which is that he also uses newsreel footage too. So, you know, mixed in with things that he's actually filming, he's also mixing in old black and white newsreel footage. Um, so that adds to that idea that you're trying to get across. Um, not all this, all the flashback scenes, some of them are in color. I mean, if you think about that sort of famous scene with his um mother on the fence. Um, and, uh, so, but, um, you know, they, he's definitely making a, a statement about Stalin. And you mentioned that scene where, you know, to give a little context for your readers, his it's, uh, we gather through the film, nothing's ever explicit in a Tarkovsky film, but we gather that his mother uh, works for a printing press. Um, and, um, she, um, thinks that she accidentally printed something obscene about Stalin. Um, They don't tell us exactly what it is, but it's sort of alluded to that it's something inappropriate um, as a typo. And she, you know, there's this great scene where she frantically runs to the printing press and goes through all the print to, to make sure. And then it turns out it was fine. It was just, um, it was just in her head. And I think Tarkovsky's talking about two different things here. One, he is making a a sort of political statement, uh, like you mentioned. 
But I think he's also talking about the nature of our psyche as well. Uh, the, the way that memories uh, play tricks on us, the way that our mind plays tricks on us. And we, we see this a lot with the mother being juxtaposed with his ex-wife. Um, in that particular scene, he, he had just gotten done or, or he does afterwards, I can't remember which, um, talking to his ex-wife and basically calling her dramatic, saying that she reminds him of his mother who was also dramatic. And in, in that scene, one of the coworkers of the mother um, basically accuses her of being histrionic and whatnot. Um, so you have this, um, it, it's, it's sort of like a dual layer uh, symbolism happening here. Is, is his memories of the Stalin era um, of, of this, of the wartime of, is, are these over-dramatized or are these accurate representations of what life was like uh, in Soviet Russia at this time? So, you know, you have these, um, the politics are sort of always there in the background, um, but he's also sort of looking at things in the way that a child looks at things. Because so much of this movie is through his memories of seeing things as a child um, and sort of figuring these things out and working them through from a child's perspective. So, um, which gets sort of muddled with these kind of, you know, Freudian kind of symbolism and things like that. Okay. Um, in the interest of trying to keep it under two hours, why don't we move on? I think you said that, I think you said that you're on your, uh, on your la on this film that that was your last one, but I know you have one more, so you're just playing tricks on us. Really? Um, Oh yeah, I'm missing. Parajanov, are you kidding me? Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. But before we could get to Parajanov, who I think is going to make for our grand finale, I think it's my turn, and I'm going to give my last one here. It's directly related to uh, the ascent, which I've already mentioned, and actually, it's in some ways also related to a couple of other films that we've talked about. It is the most uh, recent of all the films that uh, we're talking about here today. It is called Idismatri, Come and See. 1985, L.M. Klimov, the director. What a movie. Um, I, I probably, uh, maybe, I, I suppose you could make an argument for one or two other films, but I would say Come and See is probably the most brutal war film ever made. One of I the agree. most difficult, one of the most difficult films to to, to watch. Um, the fact that it's titled what it what it is is almost, uh, you know, a slap in the face. You know, Come and See, I mean, Boy, there's some stuff in here you don't want to see, but it is extremely powerful. It is a shocking film. It is uh, brutal in every way. I didn't even really play up the violence and brutality aspect of Andrei Rublev when we were talking about it, but that film has moments of serious brutality uh, at various times. But Come and see, I think, takes it to a whole other level. Of course, this is made in nineteen in the nineteen eighties, nineteen eighty five. So you're talking in the perestroika period. Uh, much more openness, much more freedom in terms of the ability to make a film, to make a film that was as daring as this one. Um, I'm not going to even describe the various atrocities that the young protagonist, uh, Flora, is subjected to. Needless to say, he is subjected to uh, round after round after round of increasingly awful atrocities and uh, uh, um, just 
un, just unspeakable evils that he witnesses and is subjected to that you will um, you will have to endure as a viewer of this film. Um, so talking a little bit about, like I said, the title, right? Come and see. It's 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 almost forcing you to see what's on the screen. And it, it is the kind of subject matter that you do want to look away from. And if you are squeamish about those type of things, just know that going into this film. Um, in talking about just some of the cinematic aspects of it, uh, one of the things that strikes me again and again, I've seen this a couple of times now, it's the sound. The sound in this film is really, really um something to pay attention to because each time there's an explosion, it's like the sound changes, right? And it's changing along with the protagonist's hearing, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like every time the bombs are exploding around him, it's like the ringing in his ears becomes the ringing in all of our ears, right? And that, and that we're almost like we are subjected to some of the physicality that he has to sort of go through. And the, and the actor, his name is Kravchenko. I mean, 14 years old, unbelievable performance. I almost can't even think of another uh, teenage performance at that level. Um, so in talking about, in talking about um, the subject, I mean, again, it's similar to the ascent you're talking about uh, Belarus in the war, the Nazis, then unlike in the ascent where the Nazis are basically non-existent, they're, they're essentially a non-entity in that film. In this film, they are very much present and they carry out some of the uh, kinds of things that you shudder to even read about. Um, so I don't know. I don't want to even get into the details <laughs> of some of those things, uh, Shallon, because that is for people to uh, experience on their own. What do you want to say about Come and See? Well, I'll just say that Come and See is a favorite film of mine. And for our podcast, I rewatched all the films except for this one because I, I was like, I can't so sit much. through this film again, even though I love it. I think it's I an know. amazing film. It is the most brutal film I think I've ever so seen. Yeah. And I've seen some pretty messed up films. Um, you know, if if the problem, one thing I will, I'll note about this film is that there's always a problem. And this is a sort of common idea amongst people who talk about film a lot is that it's difficult to make an anti-war film because in the process of making an anti-war film, you sort of indirectly uh, glorify war in some way, or, or you're sort of um, profiting off of a, a kind of tragic, an unspeakable tragedy. I think if there's any film that can claim to be an, a truly anti-war film, it is this movie. It's, it's, um, so unrelentlessly brutal. <laughs> um, it's just, I can't even um, talk about all the different things. It's the kind of thing you have to experience. And it, and it doesn't do it. And it's not um, realistic in the way that you tend to think of real realism where, you know, it's, you're seeing exactly what's happening. Um, it mixes a lot of this sort of like hyper-realistic and, um, you know, surrealist almost scenes with um, with very psychological and poetic and almost kind of like existential uh, themes happening at the same time that all this brutal violence is happening. So, um, like I said, it's relentless. It's 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 unforgettable. It's brutal. 
Um, I will just quote something, if you don't mind me saying a quote that I that I liked. Um, Roger Ebert, who who I only agree with like half the time, um, half the time I, I don't like him. But um, he said something that I thought was really um, on point about this film that kind of captures it. And it speaks to the, the thing you were mentioning about sound. Uh, he said, there's a curious scene here in a wood, the sun falling down through the leaves when the soundtrack, which has been grim and mournful, suddenly breaks free into Mozart. And what does this signify? A fantasy, I believe, and not Flora's, who has probably never heard such music. The Mozart descends into the film like a deusix ex machina uh, to lift us from its despair. We can accept it if we want, but it changes nothing. It is like an ironic taunt. Uh, and I think that this really sort of captures um, what this film does. It, it sort of allows the, the audience watching it to have these moments that uh, it needs um, to break free of this horrible thing that you're experiencing, even though the character themselves, um, you know that the character themselves cannot escape it. So, Shallon, I know that you are a, a, a lover and admirer of Bergman. And I didn't <laughs> yeah. know until I read a little bit about, I didn't realize that Come and See comes from the Book of Revelation where mm -hmm. Bergman also got his title for his famous 19, uh, was it 1968? No, 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 no. Well, seventh, there's Seventh Seal, and then he also references it in Shame, I think. Oh, yeah, um, Shame. But anyway. Um, Another the, great war, anti-war film. Yes, yes. And, um, but it is, uh, let's see, where is it? I, I wrote it down. John, uh, the book of Revelations, when the Lamb of God opens the fourth seal of the scroll of Revelation, John hears, quote, the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. Amazing. And I didn't realize that come okay. and see came from there. And yeah. uh, behold a pale horse, also a great film also referenced from that. So I uh, just thought that was interesting. So any, any, any Bergman parallels that you want to note? You know, that that's funny. I didn't even think to think about um, Bergman's shame, but that is a, a great anti-war film as well. I will just make a note that um, Tarkovsky was Bergman's favorite director. So if that says anything for anyone who's never seen Tarkovsky before, but like Bergman, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, right, exactly. And ultimately Tarkovsky ended up making films under the auspices of Bergman at the end of his career uh, in Europe once he had left the Soviet Union. So you know, anyway. You, I was just going to say, you mentioned music and um, music plays a big role in Tarkovsky's films too, not to go backwards to one we already talked about, but uh, in Tarkovsky's Mirror, um, you hear throughout um, Bach's St. John's Passion, um, you know, and it, it, the, that composition, of course, the central theme of that is that, you know, that, that you see played sort of over and over throughout the movie is what's called the victory of the cross, um, you know, this suffering that Jesus went through. And then, you know, there's, of course, the, the victory in the end. Um, and you do see in Mirror, the very last scene, there's like a sort of, you know, rusty looking cross, um, which I think is sort of a, a telephone line, but it's made to look like a cross and it's the last thing you see in Mirror. So in, in Come and See, um, but then also in all these other movies we've been talking about after the, the 
thaw, um, you'll notice, or your listeners will notice that there's a common theme where there is um, over and over uh, religious themes. So you see this sort of hearkening back to Christian mythology and iconography um, in all of these movies. And I think that speaks to how much uh, the, you know, religion played a major role in the Russian psyche. And this is the kind of thing that during the um, Soviet period of film, uh, you know, they, they tried to sort of take out any references to religion. And if they did mention religion, it was they were making fun of the priest or they were making fun of superstition and things like that. After the thaw, you see a lot more incorporation of uh, these spiritual religious themes. And, you know, it. I think that that just speaks to sort of the Russian character that you have to understand that, that you know, religion played such, the, the Orthodox Church played such an important part uh, in Russian culture that you start to see that in more of these later films. I agree partially with that, although I would have a slightly different take on that to say that um, that it is also, in a sense, a reaction against what had become the state religion, right? Which was, right, yeah, you know, full sure. do- do- the dogma of the Communist Party of Stalin, et cetera, et cetera, right? right? So, Absolutely. so this new post-war generation of Soviet filmmakers—they're not just hearkening back to, you know, the church without understanding all of the reactionary elements of it. Rather, they're almost rebelling against what is the state religion, that being the Communist Party. Absolutely, I I completely agree with that for sure. So anyway, um, all right, let's try to keep it under the two hour mark. So you got like six (laughs) minutes, six minutes, Shallon. Let's do it. That's perfect. I have one last film and I, it's hard to talk about in words anyway, so we can keep it short, but, um, and it it does uh, go to religion as well. So we'll, um, the last film is by Sergei Perjanov. Uh, which is a 1969 film called The Color of Pomegranates. This is a combination Soviet-Armenian film. Um, So this film is essentially about um, the uh, 18th century Persian poet, um, Syed Nova. And um, he's also um, known as uh, the King of Songs. And even though this person doesn't necessarily play a role in Soviet history, for instance, um, he was a figure that um, they would have heard about uh, at this time. So his poems essentially in this movie, again, it's not really plot based. It's 100% a visual movie. Um, Essentially what they did was they put his poems in a visual sense. You see his poems rather than hear them. So all of the different scenes are, they're broken up into chapters, very similar to Andre Rublev, you know, his childhood, and then when he's a prince and old age and so forth. And you actually see these like sort of folk melodies and, uh, you know, sheep and fruit and animals and all these things that are images from his actual poetry that they put in a visual setting. But another thing that's really interesting about this movie is that the the visuals are presented in a very sort of um, two-dimensional kind of way, very much like an icon painting. So again, it goes back to this thing that after the thaw, um, we see all these references to, um, you know, the the Russian church and and uh, 
this entire movie is almost as if they've like recreated uh, real life icon paintings um, to, to illustrate uh, this poet's life. So, um, you know, again, it's a very visual sort of thing. You might have noticed um, from those of us who remember the, M the days of MTV, um, which might not be many of us, um, the uh, things like Madonna's videos, R.E.M.'s video, music video, Losing My Religion, they're actually, um, they're, some of them reference this movie. So they might have actually seen some imagery from this movie before uh, without realizing it. So anyway, that's, that's all I'll mention about that since we're running low on time. Did but, you ever um, see shadows of forgotten ancestors? No, I believe that's the title of it. I, I, I think I'd have to unpack my old boxes of DVDs, but Parajanov, <laughs> Parajanov had another film called shadows of the forgotten ancestors. That was very similar, but uh, it was uh, also like visual poetry, very similar to it. Not as good as color pomegranates, not as, you know, well-respected, but uh, another one that's worth seeing. I'll have to check that one out. Okay, Shallon, um, <laughs> what do you think? What recommendations are you going to give that didn't make the list? Give, give, I don't know, give one or two. All right. Well, um, if I had to give a recommendation that didn't make the list we talked about today, I'll give two. How's that? I'll say um, Eisenstein's 1930 film, Que Viva Mexico. Um, and then I'll also, well, you know, I'll say three. I'll cheat and say three. Um, I'll say a 1975 um, Soviet Japanese film called Dersu Usula. Um, Uzula, sorry. Uh, and then I'll also say another Tarkovsky film, which is his 1983 film, Nostalgia. I know a lot of people are familiar with Solaris and Stalker, which are also wonderful films. Um, but Nostalgia is one that um, I particularly love and, and also deals with many of the same themes that we've talked about. Shallon Van Tyne has been my guest today. Shallon is a wonderful person, but she is also an author, a cultural historian. Her website, shallonvantyne.com, S-H-A-L-O-N-V-A-N-T-I-N-E.com. She is a regular contributor with Counterpunch, and I hope you will follow her and support her work. Shallon, thanks for chatting about movies with us. I guess we'll figure out what the next country will do do is i i already have some ideas but we'll oh my god it out. <laughs> oh my god all right we'll we'll do we'll, we'll leave the nerd stuff till i hang up the recording okay, <laughs> okay listeners thank you as always and we will chat again next week